Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 103, and today's guest is Nigel Eccles, co-founder and CEO at Flick. Nigel is a serial entrepreneur with a tremendous track record. If you are a fan of football, you're probably very familiar with the TV ads from his previous company. He's a co-founder and former CEO of FanDuel, one of the leading companies that emerged in the daily fantasy sports category. The company raised over $400 million in funding and was acquired by Paddy Power Betfair just over a year ago. His latest startup, Flick, is focused on building communities around podcasts. The app allows audiences to engage and communicate on a much deeper level with the content, the creators, and other members of the community. The company has raised over $4 million to date. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the game of Shinty, the coolest stick and ball sport you've probably never heard of, Nigel's decision to take a major risk at an interesting stage of his life and start his first company called HubDub, the precursor to FanDuel, a deep dive into the history of FanDuel, including the story behind its founding, where the name came from, how it scaled over time, and lots more, what it was like running a hyper-growth company, all the details behind his current startup, Flick, advice on finding a co-founder, how to build a consumer product, as well as the acquisition strategies behind it, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note, the VentureFish job board is blowing up. There are so many amazing opportunities to check out across the hottest companies in New York tech. You'll find positions at all levels of experience across all job functions like product, engineering, sales, marketing, customer success, user experience, and more. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash jobs to start searching. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Nigel. Nigel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So we have a ton to talk about. Uh, mm-hmm. You've obviously uh, built a, a company that scaled to extraordinary proportions and you're mm-hmm. on to your next startup. But before we even get into that, um, I noticed back in college, you were uh, part of the, the Shinty team. Yes. I, I wasn't familiar with the game. Mm-hmm. So of course I went to Google and was on YouTube mm-hmm. and watched the, uh, the rules of Shinty, which looked like a really fun game. Yeah. So what is the game about? And I was just like, it looked pretty... Uh, pretty aggressive yeah and i was wondering if you ever got whacked with one of those sticks because the way they swing the yeah. sticks uh i i can't imagine you never got whacked by one but i don't know it's funny you find that no so it's, it's been a long time since i played so yeah so shinty and, and uh, to american audiences there's a game in ireland called hurling uh hurley uh there's similar sports they're they're team sports that are stick and ball sports um uh Somewhat like field hockey, but much more played in the air. Um, and a shinty stick is much longer than a hockey. There's a field hockey stick, and it's got a full golf swing. Um, additionally, you can play uh, online hockey. You can play the ball in the air, and you can also swing both directions. And there's no restrictions on um, in hockey. There's restrictions on how high you can swing the club with shinty. It's all fair. And then the last big difference with with field hockey or two of them. Uh, Body-to-body contacts allowed, shoulder-to-shoulder contact, uh, and you can also use the feet to stop the ball. Um, so with those kind of somewhat variants of the rules, it is an insane game. Um, uh, unlike, um, certainly when I played it, no one wore helmets, uh, or very few people wore helmets. Um, you can, uh, they did make one rule change just before I started playing, which is you weren't allowed to head the ball. Now, the ball is this kind of compact you know, it's not quite as hard as a baseball, but it's kind of that sort of territory. Um, and so you, you used to be able to head the ball, which I was like, why would you ever want to do that? Um, you should definitely go to YouTube and, and watch like a couple of games. It is fantastic. And you see them play the skill. Um, 
like the speed of the game, the ball's moving so fast, um, and they're so athletic. It is an amazing game to watch. Only played in like certain parts of Scotland, and it's never really sort of gone and gone beyond that. I always thought lacrosse goalies had it bad. Yeah. Then I saw the goalie for Shinty. I'm like, yeah. who, who gets to be that guy? Yeah, no, that's a, the, the, the one who, like, the, the, the one they hate. <laughs> There's always, like, any game we would travel. And in Scotland, a lot of these games are in the Highlands. You'd travel for, like, five hours. and Probably, like, five hours of argument about who would go and go. Like, no one wanted that position. Because the, the net was very large. Yeah, really big net. I didn't see him. Maybe he had a chest protector. I don't know, but he didn't really have much going on in terms no, of protection. None. And he just had that little, that, the same stick. <laughs> just a stick. <laughs> Pretty much it. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's, a, it's an insane sport. Um, there, there's another couple of really nice things you could do in Shinty that you couldn't do like in field hockey, which is a clique, which is if someone's going for a swing, on the down swing, what you can do is you can hit their stick away and, and then catch the ball. And when you see somebody do it beautifully, it's the most amazing thing to see because, like, the person swinging just doesn't know what's happened. And he's, like, swinging, and basically his stick goes all wobbly, and then the other guy stole the ball. And the other one, which is the more dangerous move, which is instead of coming from behind, the guy's coming at you, and he's swinging for the ball, and what you do is you jump, and you basically put plant your sticks to the other side of the ball, and so his stick comes crashing down into your stick you basically shoulder mouth the ball and take the ball and it's if you get it right amazing if you get it wrong you get a stick in the face which is <laughs> a pretty horrible experience um but yeah that's so there, there are a couple of moves that are like you know the, the professionals are you know the, the really good players an amateur sport when you see them do it it's like the most spectacular thing to see well, we could definitely have our own podcast on Shinty because I have so many questions. But go to YouTube and watch it. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to check up a couple of matches. But um, well, let's let's you know you kind of talked a little bit about you know kind of your background. But where did you actually grow up, and what were you like as a kid? Yeah, so I grew up in Northern Ireland, uh, kind of Tyrone. I grew up on a dairy farm, um, so I, I love to remind my kids at their age I was milking cows and and feeding calves. Work ethic. Um, yeah, work ethic from a very early age, um, and then. Uh, left school, uh, went to went to college in uh, in Scotland, went to St Andrews, um, uh, and then after that, when I graduated, went to London uh, and fairly quickly got into startups. Um, uh, so in two, uh, around two thousand or ninety nine, I got involved in a company called Flutter.com, which was a, a betting exchange. Um, so online betting has been legal in the UK since the nineteen sixties. And that company, very interestingly, merged with Betfair um, in 2001. Um, and Betfair has gone on to be an enormously successful uh, betting company. Uh, but in 2001, it was around merged. Uh, Flutter and Betfair was about 32 people. Um, so saw that experience at a very early stage. Um, just I really, really enjoyed that experience. Obviously, sort of 2002, 2004, um, it was a very tough time to be in startups. I went and got involved in another startup. Um, but actually, sort of 03 to 06, got out of startups for a while and actually worked in consultancy McKinsey uh, for three years, three, four years. Uh, but the, the startups were in my blood at that point. And I knew at McKinsey that I really wanted to go back and was really looking for the right opportunity to go and do so. So in my... Uh travels preparing for this uh, interview mm-hmm. um 
from what I read, uh, you, you and your wife uh, had a child, you know, yeah. you just bought a house and it's, uh, you know, 2008, 2009 timeframe. And yeah. you decide at that point, Hey, let's, let's start our own company. Let's, let's yeah. do a startup. So, yeah. so that kind of sets the stage for uh, you as a, a risk taker, right? Yeah. Like, it's, you know, that's usually when people start to back off the risk and it's like, yeah. oh, I need stability of maybe a big company, but yeah. you, guys, you guys did the opposite. That's right. And that was you know, one of the sort of most critical decisions I've ever made in my life and one of the most nerve wracking ones. And I'm sure a lot of people listen to the show. I'm sure a lot of people were like, they want to be an entrepreneur and they're, they're scared of that big jump. And I find it terrifying. Like I'd been in a startup, but I'd never started a company. I was at a corporate job, which paid very well, you know, and had this path to a pension plan. And that scared the hell out of me. Like I was like, I was bored. I was bored out of my mind. And I, every, it's funny, every Sunday I used to get the newspapers, the, the Sunday newspapers in the UK, and they would have entrepreneurs in it. And it used to piss me off. I would be like, I could be that guy. I could do that. And then every week it wouldn't be me. Um, and so I think I became very difficult to live with because I was bored at work. I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I didn't do it. Um, and so we had had our second child. Uh, we'd just taken a huge mortgage. And I felt that it was kind of slipping away. Um, and I was just like, I just wanted to do it. And finally, my wife was like, just do it. Like, I, you know, like, you know, if it doesn't work out, I'm sure you can go get another job. I cannot listen to you for the next five years talking about how you we should do this and not do it. And that to me was the particularly terrifying part because I was like, up until that point, it wasn't real, real. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of playing around. I was doing stuff on the side. And I was like thinking about doing it. But when my wife is much more risk averse, to, than me said you should do it I was like oh my god I have like no no reason you know, I have no get out here and that that was very terrifying I do remember to this day the moment I went in and resigned from my boss who was the CEO of this media company and I, my hands were shaking I was like oh my god what am I doing I would resign from places before I've been fired before but this was like I'm resigning for nothing um, I'm sure they're like, so what are you doing next? You're like, I, I'm just, I have this idea. <laughs> that was literally it. It was, it was, it was terrifying. And this, you know, and to complicate things, it was, you know, the 2008, 2009 financial. Yeah, it was just before it. So it, it was, okay. things were still looking okay. Um, so obviously end of 2008, things really fell apart. Um, so I resigned in November, 2007. Um, okay. And I had, uh, well, what became, there was five co-founders, which was my wife, myself, and then uh, three other co-founders who had a different startup. And we basically said, let's get together and be a five-person co-founder. So at that point, it was okay. There was maybe, storm, in retrospect, there were storm clouds appearing. But I sort of thought, hey, things are good. And this was HubDub. So what was what was the company originally? Like, what were you guys working on? Yeah, so the original idea was HubDub was a prediction market. I still think it's a really fun idea, and and and, it, and we learned a lot from it. And the concept was was it was a play money prediction market where people could trade um, on the outcome of running news stories. So you might say, um, I don't know, pres twenty twenty presidential election, who's going to win? And so people could trade on it, and then you could see a and they would use play money, and you could then see a predicted outcome, and you would say, you know, Trump is at forty percent. 
Um, and so these other people are at, or who would get the nomination. So you could actually see who was the front runner. And so it became a news source in itself. Because I found when I read the news, it was quite frustrating that they would they would talk about candidates that like, you know, you'd go and look at the markets and they had no chance. And you're like, look, these, why are we talking about those? That like, I want to know what, you know, who's the most likely person? Where has the move been? Has this been a move? Or, you know, a big one in the election would be like, this is really significant. And I would go and look at the betting markets and nothing had changed. Mm-hmm. And I would go, it's not that significant. That had the betting markets would have moved. And so our idea was we could take this concept for just even just politics and break it for all news stories. And people could go, is this a significant news event or not? And you could see if the market had moved, then it would be significant. Yeah, it is an interesting idea. And mm-hmm. so this was something that was originally like ad supported? Yeah, so it was going to be an ad supported product. Um, and uh, we built it. So we started in November 2007 uh, and we started to get pretty good traction. We got good press. And the funny thing that I discovered was that we probably had the best launch of Hub of any product I've ever launched before or since. Um, and the reason was that it was a product that journalists loved. It was about the news. And what I discovered was that the only thing that journalists loved, that journalists love writing about themselves and the news industry. And this was a news industry product. And so we could create press coverage. We got really nice user growth. Um, but and, and that was the, so we were in this nice sort of growth curve in terms of users, but it, there wasn't really a, a really good model of monetization. Yeah. Okay. So on to the the next chapter, FanDuel. Yeah. So talk about the whole background story of you know sure. how'd you come up with the idea? You know, daily fantasy sports, yeah. uh, which you know mainly fantasy sports was you know an American mm-hmm. sport football. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and you're in Scotland at the time, right? <laughs> so we were, you know, we certainly would have been a team that you would bet on to transform uh, sports in the U.S. Like, like I, between the five of us, I think we hadn't watched more than five games of any form of U.S. sports. Um, I think I'd watched a baseball game like once. Um, like we just, we weren't familiar with it. What we find with HubDub was we'd created this community uh, around predictions. And one of the things was sports was just a category in that community. And the two are surprised it became one of the most popular ones, even though we hadn't really focused on it. So that was it sort of telling us, like, wait a second, that's kind of interesting. That seems to be where the most news is, where people want predictions. And so uh, we were actually at South by Southwest uh, in Austin in 2000, and uh, I guess this was 2009. And uh, we, one of our, um, one of our customer service agents played, played fantasy sports. None of us, none of the founders did. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> so we, he kind of explained it and I was like, okay. I was like, okay, so cool. I want to play. Why, why can't I, can I play? And he was like, so it's like March. And he was like, well, no. You need some I'm buddies. Like, <laughs> like sign up for the start of the season. And I'm like, why? That's ridiculous. And he was like, that's just the way it is. And I'm like, okay. So I have to start. And I'm like, and I'm like, how long does it take? And he says, well, it takes like four months. I was like, what? I've never heard of any game taking four months to play. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. And I'm like, okay, can I sign up on my phone? And he was like, well, no, no, you can't do that either. So there was all these things that I think because we knew nothing about it, we could have this sort of fresh perspective that, and 
and we were like, and why does why is it so confusing? Like, why is there so many different rules? Like, you know, because at the time you would always anyone you would talk to say, well, you know, a touchdown is worth four points, but this is worth five. Here it's worth six, but if it's a reception, it's that. And I'm like, this is so confusing. Like, why don't you make it really simple so that you know the mass market just come in and play? You're just like on my phone, I can play, I can play in a day. And so that was kind of our idea that a game that we'd never played before, didn't really understand. We're like, why don't we just take it and make it a lot simpler and, and there be more popular. Yeah, how'd you come up with the name? Um, so that wasn't me. Uh, that was my co-founders. Um, the previous company, HubDub, we had spent months arguing over it. <laughs> to, to the, it's probably the detriment of productivity. And with Fangio, the, my, I was out of the office and my co-founder said, let's come up with a name while Nigel's out. And then we'll buy the domain and then we'll just be agreed. And the idea, the concept of the name was the original game was people playing one-on-one with other people. So it was like a duel. Mm-hmm. And and they were fans. It was the idea of like bringing sports fans together and having these duels. So the idea came up with the idea of fan duel. They bought the domain and I came back and they said, we're done. <laughs> we have a name. <laughs> and that was that was it. Now, and how did you start to build out FanDuel? Like getting you know initial traction, yeah, uh, consumers to understand. Because even though um, I think I saw somewhere that um, fantasy sports has been around since the 1960s. That's right. That yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so, so, and so it was hard. Like we had a great demand. The funny thing, even before that, was you know we had just raised a million dollars for Series A. Um, through this crisis and you know we came in I remember our first board meeting in January 2009 and it was still hubbed up and our you know on our numbers we were all off in our numbers because I think as any entrepreneur will tell you as soon as you close the money your numbers always you, you always they always get worse <laughs> you know everything's usually you know you always make sure everything's fine until you close and then everything falls apart and that was us like January was bad February was even worse March was really bad and uh, so we went out to south by southwest we came back with this idea and this name is banjo and i remember we came in so excited to the next board meeting and we were like hey yeah yeah the numbers are terrible but (laughs) we've got this totally new idea and our investors they were they listened they were obviously pretty stunned because they just spent like you know, four or five months doing due diligence on this whole other concept. Mm-hmm. And here they are, the, the money was barely in the bank. And we had said, ah, forget about that. We've got this new idea about something that not only they didn't know anything about it, we didn't really know anything either. Um, but they were really good. They were really patient. They, um, uh, there's uh, Mike Ramsey, who's the founder of TiVo. Uh, he's an advisor to our original investors. And he sat us down and he said, you know, TiVo originally wasn't TiVo. It was a different product. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said we they pivoted. And this is before people even talked about pivoting, um, and so they were like, "Look, you can do this once. <laughs> Don't come back in six months' time with a new idea. This is your idea." And I was like, "Okay." And so we got we got the investors on board. Um, they were like, "Okay, show us." Um, we launched it, and we launched it in like July, which we didn't know. Like that's the dog days of summer and baseball like really sports is at its lowest point um, in July and it kind of sucked like nobody wanted to play uh, and fantasy baseball people were already signed up in their leagues Mm -hmm. and so we had no idea that like there was just like no traction and we maybe 
I remember in that period, um, so my wife was her CMO pretty much all the way through. And I remember she was like, this is just so hard. And we were doing like PPC, pay-per-click advertising. Um, and I was like, look, I figured it out. We need to get two new users a day, two new paying users. If you can just do that, then we're good. And she's like, we can't get two users a day. <laughs> it was like, even that was a stretch goal. Uh, and so it was, wow. it was hard. That is amazing to hear. Yeah, two new users. And so the first thing that we didn't understand was the seasonality. Uh, fantasy sports, sports in the but fantasy sports is extreme seasonality. So we launched in July, horrible time to launch. And then we also, our product wasn't quite right for the market. Um, our original product was like a draft product where you had to put in your lineup and the other person, and then it would pick in like a little snake, mm-hmm. you know, their pick, your pick, their pick, your pick. And people didn't like it. And I had a phone call. This user emailed me and said, your product sucks because, and he wrote this long email, and I started to reply, no, 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 you're wrong. And I'm like, wait a second, I actually know nothing about this market. And here's someone who spent a lot of time like giving me this like feedback. And I'm like, so I, I instead of like deleted that email and wrote another email, I was like, okay, let's talk. And so I called him and he was like, you want to be salary cap. And so salary cap is where every player has a price and there's a cap. So you've got 35000 to spend. And so if you pick Tom Brady, he's going to be expensive and you've got to pick cheaper players elsewhere. And so we, we, I went back to the engineering team and I said, look, I just got a guy on the phone. <laughs> he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. And he thinks we got it wrong. He thinks we should be like a salary cap and not a, and not a snake draft. And they're like, oh, okay. I'm like, what do you think? He said, yeah, I think we could build that in a couple of weeks. So we built that in a couple of weeks. And we launched for football season. And the combination of the new product and the fact that we were now in football, and suddenly we just saw the product like take off. And we were like, wow, we're, we're geniuses. So we saw that there. Um, what happened then when when February happened was you know football ends and uh, was suddenly we, we were morons again because <laughs> we had the biggest season drop off and that was kind of the seasonality it took us years to figure out seasonality but there was getting the right product listening to the customers getting the right product and then starting to understand the seasons was really critical to us early on. Well, that's a good lesson learned of listen to your users, right? That person, you know, took the time to give you a lot of insight into he, who knows how long he had been playing fantasy yeah. sports and yeah. was a passionate user. Yeah, and it's always like, you know, it's, it's funny. Like everyone says, listen to your customers. But you, the, the interesting thing is why you don't do it. Um, and I actually think one of the reasons you don't do it is um, the feedback is often really hard. Uh, and I think also as an entrepreneur, you really want validation that you're right. And so it's, it's cause it's tough. Like you're creating something that doesn't exist. You're actually existing in a, I would describe it as a, a world of make believe. Like you believe that you can create something that people will want that will exist. And you're kind of faking it. And when someone criticizes it, it it's tough, like you emotionally. And so it's very hard to, um, it's very hard to take that feedback on emotionally because it's kind of saying your baby's ugly, right? And your baby is kind of ugly, but it's really hard to deal with. And I think what I find is you have to deal with emotion. People will criticize it. And you kind of like, what I did was like write the email, which is like, you know, screw you. <laughs> but then don't send it. You know, that's the key thing is don't send it. 
and and just have more confidence that it's not it doesn't you don't have to sell these people you have to you know then listen to them we're going to go okay screw you i'm going to be right but i'm going to listen um and so that's what i found which was actually putting your ego aside and and taking the feedback and then sort of going okay let's i'm going to take the feedback we're going to make it right we're going to fix it now at this point in time was the growth more viral i'm sure you were still spending but you didn't have the amount of capital to just yeah. blast the world so yeah. was it really a viral people like hey did you hear about mm-hmm. this really fantasy thing no and, and fanjo was never viral in fact what we discovered um is that paid products are almost never viral um if you think about virality for someone to be viral um how does something become viral well it has to be a product that has very wide interest, right? So Facebook is great viral or Instagram because every one of your friends might be interested in it. Um, the problem with something like Fangio is you have two problems. One is it's in a vertical. So even if I play fantasy sports, I might know nine or ten other people who play fantasy sports. So it's dramatically smaller than a social network where I actually maybe know a hundred people. So it's sort of and then it's like, and then who would pay to play fantasy sports? And of that 10, it might be two. And so maybe I send it to that two. But what if my conversion of that two people is like 20%? Well, now I'm, you know, point, point 0.4 of a, a person. And so I'm not viral. And so almost no products are, are, are truly, are paid products are truly viral. Some people work with freemium products. Like, so Dropbox had a certain amount of virality because it was a free product where you could upsell. Um, but Fangio really was a paid product. And so we never really, we're never viral and we're never going to be viral. It really, where growth came from was from being very, becoming very good at paid acquisition marketing. And then, so after that initial season, was it, okay, next football season, we have to nail this? And, because uh, that's when things really started to just super accelerate, right? Yeah, so it probably took, we got a better idea after the first year of like what months were good and what were bad. Um, the importance of the start of the football season, like we, but I think it took really two years to figure it out. Um, it was funny. We did, you know, we did discover, like I'm saying now, viral virally didn't work. It took us years, maybe five years to figure that out like we always sort of thought we should be viral like we should have this and you know it was funny there was really three we made three bets we said okay we're either going to figure out virality and so our product team were like we got this we can go viral and the second one was business development we were like hey there's big companies like cbs there's big sports sites why don't we partner with them because they've got the traffic we can monetize it and we'll share share in the benefit and the third one, which was probably the smallest bet of ours, was um, let's let's spend some money, let's advertise, <laughs> which at the time just seemed very, um, you know, very like out of market. Like it was kind of counterintuitive that you would advertise. Like surely, if it was a great product, people would want it. Um, and my wife, who was our CMO, was like, no we should be testing uh, advertising. And so I remember her first ever advertising budget was $30,000. So virality, totally bombed, right? Like we, we never figured it out. And, and, and in retrospect, I realized why it, it wasn't going to work. 
business development was pretty much a disaster <laughs> from day one. Like I, I don't, I can think of almost, I can think of exactly zero deals that we did, certainly in the first five years of the company that we were, whenever they were like partnerships or revenue share deals that were like really good deals. And what we discovered was that we were the best people to sell our product. Um, the, you know, just because this big media company had an audience, they didn't know how to sell our product and they didn't really care that much about our product. Um, and so we would do these white labels and then we'd plug it into their product and they would be excited for a week or two and then they'd get bored and they'd move on. And so that, then I, that was on me. Like I was in charge of business development. Um, and so, but it was the marketing side, which uh, Leslie ran that she was like, let's figure out how to market, how to acquire customers. And it really was a kind of a flywheel. Like, so, you know, in, it was actually 20, 2010, early 2010, we actually had any money where we were like, okay, we're going to, no, actually early 2011, we're going to try radio. We were actually, because PPC was getting some volume, but what you have to remember is people weren't looking for this. Like it wasn't like this was an existing product that people were looking for. And so we needed a medium that could sell a story and tell people about a new product. And so it was actually radio was the first thing that really started to give us growth and traction because we could go out there and we could have hosts talk about the product and bring people in. And, and at what point did you decide on, you know, the TV ads? Cause there was, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was that one season or if it was multiple yeah. seasons, but I just remember every other ad watching yeah. the end was FanDuel yeah. and DraftKings. That's was, right. Yeah. yeah. So what, that's what, so in 2011, we discovered radio and we discovered, and so there was other channels that were really important, like affiliate, like digital, like social. But radio, we discovered, was was the product that really was driving the story, the sort of top-of-line growth, giving the brand awareness and bringing people in and helping drive those other channels. And so we ramped it sort of 2011, 2012, 2013. We then started to get to a scale where TV would work. Now, initially, one of the challenges was we couldn't get anyone to take our ads because um, they were like, well, I'm not sure about the legality of it. We're really not that comfortable. And the, the thing that changed that was the numbers got bigger. <laughs> you know, the amount that we were willing to spend that suddenly they're like, we're not comfortable with it. You know, it wasn't because there's nothing that changed in the market. The legal situation was exactly the same. But suddenly when we were phoning up saying, hey, we want to spend a million dollars with them, it made a huge difference from we want to spend like 100000 And so radio or TV really came out of radio in that we had really figured it out on radio. And we sort of, we know how to work this. So then we say, let's take those ads and create ads that really explain the product and tell the story and sell the benefits and, and bring that over to TV. And sort of um, 13, 14, and then 15 being the real blowout year were the years at which we really started to go very heavy on TV. Yeah. And each, you know, you kept raising like very large rounds of funding yeah. to, I'm assuming that majority of that capital is going towards the, you know, acquisition effort. Yeah, oh, but certainly acquisition was one of our biggest uh, spans. So the unit economics industry at the time was about, it cost about $50 to acquire a customer. And uh, there's a paid customer. Um, we, and we, we operated through that very, very disciplined. And we would increase year and year, we'd increase our spend, maybe three or five X, and still keep a $50 CPA. I mean, it just it was phenomenal. The, the marketing team were 
the, the best in the industry at the time, just really, really hardcore, focused on, okay, if I spend here, how will that drive my CPA? Um, and they scaled that each year. Um, and, but what happened was the market started to become very, very competitive. Um, and so uh, Draft Street before and then DraftKings later, and, and in 2014, we raised, they raised about 40 million, we raised about 70 million, and Fangio just cleaned the floor. Like they, we ended the year dominant position. We were a two exercise of DraftKings. We owned 65% of the market. And I think DraftKings sort of ended the year going, oh my God, like we thought we were catching up or we're actually losing share. So they basically said, right, we have to make sure 2015 is the year that we dominate. And so they effectively went out and raised half a billion dollars and spent it. Um, and we obviously got wind that that was happening. And so we raised, we were like, look, we think, we actually think that spending that amount of money is value destructive, but we're not going to just, we're not just going to like raise, you know, small amounts. We raised about 300 million and didn't spend all of it. Um, but you know, spent a good chunk of it, spent about 250 million in, in, in that year because we were like, look, we created this market where, like we're willing to share it, but we're not about to give up on it. Um, and so that's why 2015, you saw this enormous amount of capital uh, going into marketing. Like this, you know, the, it was hyper growth phase mm -hmm. of, of the company. So I'm sure everyone was just running like crazy and trying to yeah. keep up with things. But what was this time period like for you? Because I imagine, you know, you're CEO of this company. It's, it's a hyper growth. Um, you're raising incredible amounts of, of funding um, you're signing up partnerships with the NBA and Comcast and all these media yeah. outlets. You're raising capital. Yeah. Um, so, so what was this time period like for you? Yeah, incredibly stressful. <laughs> it's kind of certainly how I remember it. Um, yeah, it was, you know, it was a lot of it was pretty terrifying. Um, you know, they, we were, because we don't, we had really come from a world that we were very worried that we were going to fail. Um, and in the early years that we were just going to outright fail. Um, it was very hard to raise our Series A and Series B. We were in the UK. We had a product that, you know, people felt had legal questions around it. And so, like, for example, our Series B, we pitched something like 86 different VCs and we got one term sheet. Um, so it was very hard to raise money. Um, and it felt like the most likely scenario was that we were going to fail. And so that was really terrifying. Um, in later years, the worry was less about just outright failure, but was being outcompeted in the market. And we felt that this was a market that a bit like, you know, this was going to be a you know, strong network effect market that, that, you know, if you lost your number one spot, you basically would be, uh, you would ultimately fail. Um, and so we were very worried about the competition. And so, that period was a very stressful period. Um, the other thing that we saw in 2015 was the media companies saw this as an opportunity to just extract money from both companies. And so we were having to deal with very aggressive media companies saying, you know, you've got 24 hours to decide whether you want this media, otherwise we're going to your competitor. Um, and that was very, very difficult to deal with. Because um, you're like, look, I'm trying to balance I want this to be a good deal. It's value accretive, but at the same time, I, I don't want to give it up to your competition. 
Um, you know, we got a company that you know, staff wise is growing 2x year on year. Um, from an engineering perspective, you've got to understand if this is a product that would have um, on any given weekend might have 20 or 30 million dollars running through it. If you have a blackout, you know, so if a product, if Facebook goes down, it kind of sucks, <laughs> but you get over it, right? You know, uh, you know, if Amazon goes down, they've lost sales. Not great, but if they come back on, you know, you just switch it back on again. With FanDuel, if you go down on a Sunday, um, you might have a 20 million liability, and of which you were going to make 2 million in profit because their margin is about 10%. And so you had this every Sunday at 1 p.m., you had this terrifying moment where hundreds of thought, it was kind of like a coordinated denial of service attack on yourself where everyone would be hitting the server. If you had the way of fantasy sports, you've got an injury, everyone will go and want to swap that player out. And so imagine you've everyone on your site comes to your servers at that moment to swap out that same player and they're hitting it and they need to get it done by one o'clock. Even not even black, if you have a slowdown and they can't do it, they're like, wait a second, that's not fair. I want my money back. Um, and so that was pretty terrifying. Every Sunday, for football season was just like terrifying terrifying yeah it's terrifying just waiting for the you know the first couple of sundays i'd be in the office but every other sunday i would be like waiting for the call from cto saying you know this is a this servers is, are melting down servers are melting down and we can't get them back up again and uh, you know we got 20 million liability and that that's that was yeah really really stressful so to top it all off you were dealing with the legality so you know mm -hmm. you look at companies that have transformed industries with, you know, Uber, with yeah. taxis and Airbnb with hotels, there's always that legality attachment yeah. to it of transforming something that people aren't accustomed to. So what yeah. was it like dealing with that where this was, you know, the controversy was, is this a form of, of betting, yeah. which is illegal or yeah. was it a game of skill? Yeah. So, you know, the funny thing, so the period I was talking about, that was kind of the good times <laughs> the, um, because what happened at the end of 2015 was we really put ourselves on the map, which was great. Like customers knew about it. The people, the players loved the product and that was what drove the business. So no amount of marketing was going to turn a product that people didn't love into success. We started off with the fact that people loved the product and we needed to get it out there. So we put ourselves on the map, but we also put ourselves in front of uh, attorney generals and regulators and investigators. And, you know, the, the interesting thing was a year before when we talked to legislators and AG, AGs, no one cared. Like, this was fantasy sports. So, like, people play fantasy sports, big deal. And we were like, well, you know, we think the industry is professionalizing. Like, we really think it's um, – and we did talk to some people, but no one cared. Like, it just was this, uh, this complete lack of interest. Um, and so – and this where fantasy sports resides is it's considered a game of skill. Um, so it's not regulated in the same way as fishing tournaments are not regulated. Golf tournaments are not regulated. Um, it basically, the definition of game of skill is it's where the skill of the player determines who, who's going to win the outcome, who's going to win the event. So it's a bona fide contest of skill. And fantasy sports for 50 years had operated in that manner. So people had been playing it. There had been every so often um, the, it had been raised as a question, but case law supported us that it was considered a game of skill. And so we continued to operate that way. We had a, we had a sort of own, our own code of ethics about how we operated, um, but we still 
very much it was a game of skill. Um, that changed very dramatically in October uh, 2015 uh, when we basically, we put ourselves in the map, there was this sort of um, scandal in the industry um, and suddenly people were like, whoa, wait a second, what is this? This, this is betting. Um, and we basically suddenly got over the period of three months, um, we had something like 11 AGs, uh, these are uh, state attorney generals, weigh in and decided this was illegal. Uh, this was illegal betting, uh, most famously in New York. Uh, we had uh, a number of Department of Justice investigations into the, into the companies. Um, we had uh, class actions. We had something over like 40 or 50 class actions uh, saying this was illegal gambling. Um, and that went from none of this happening to within the space of like three months, suddenly we had all of this on top of us. Uh, and it was obviously a very, very scary period. Yeah, I'm sure that was very, very stressful. It was pretty terrifying. The, the, the one thing, the big difference between this and Uber, and Uber obviously has gone with a lot of regulatory issues, is gaming law is um, it's not like... It's not like breaking the Department of Transport rules. <laughs> it's uh, it, it is uh, it's criminal. Um, if you run if you run a um, like a poker site or a, you know if you invite people around and you charge them a fee and run a poker night, you're breaking the law and you could go to jail for that. And so if you run a, a website that has millions of players, and we in our view and her lawyer's view was this bona fide game of skill, um, then that's fine, but if the AG says, you know what, that actually is a multi-billion dollar illegal gambling operation, that's very worrying uh, because they have the power to turn up at your office, arrest you, uh, put you in, in cuffs, and you know, march you out of the place. So when that happens, that does get quite, uh, quite concerning. Well, going back to the, the, the fun days, so the, do you have like a, a favorite memory from uh, you know, this whole crazy just growth and um it's, it's i've been asked that a lot and it, they don't stick out like there's no kind of like big moments the, the the sort of fun stuff that i remember was just like working particularly in the early days in the early team like you know work you know you work late and like something works um really well you know you kind of you do some marketing campaign or like the, the end of the first nfl sunday and it all goes smoothly and you've been working on that for like eight months. And there's just a really nice moment where you're like, this team's awesome. Like, we've really done this. And those are the moments that I kind of remember like in the office, just kind of, you know, with, with the team and going, wow, we've really built something really cool. And then the other thing I'd say is, is um, meeting the players. So we used to do live events. We do, up to four to eight live events a year, meeting the players who would just say, you know, this game is just like, you know, transformed my life in a way. Like, it's just, I find it's, it's so much fun. I've met so many people through it. I've always loved sports, but being able to like connect with other people around sports, they just said, it's just like the most fun thing ever. That's also just like a real highlight for us. Um, is one of the things over that time that we just thought was really cool. Let's talk about your, your current startup. So what's, mm -hmm. uh, what is Flick? Yeah, so Flick, in a lot of ways, is just built on our experiences with Fangio. Um, when I looked at Fangio um, when we were at scale, and we sort of said, well, how did we get here? And we said, look, we had a really cool product. It was a, it was a ton of fun. It was really nice to execute it. But when I looked at it more deeply, what I realized was it was really built around the community. Um, so 
with fantasy sports, like people who played there had played fantasy sports before, but what we did with Fangio is we created this community where they could connect with other people who were also similarly excited about fantasy sports and, and go from playing like in one or two leagues with a bunch of friends to playing in 500 leagues a day, <laughs> you know, and like discussing the, the intricacies of, uh, you know, the, of the different metrics that they use and whether some player was in the up and whether some player should be faded and whether he was going to be like a top pick and therefore you wanted to avoid him. Like that, what made that a success was the community. And, you know, when I look back at what we did, like, so we started with chat. Like we had a chat product on Fangio, which was awesome fun and then became ridiculously unmanageable. This just became so busy. And then we had forums, uh, which again, kind of overwhelmed as well. And then we also had uh, like live events where people could actually meet each other, uh, you know, form friendships. And so what I realized was we built these really great community tools, um, which actually at scale, we never really properly supported because it just, it becomes really involved to build a chat product that works at a real scale. Um, and so when I looked at it and I said, you know, it's really fascinating. There's other verticals and particularly podcasts that serve so many different verticals, like, like this one here, like crime, like politics, like sports, and they have this great community, but there's no, there's no community. There's no, you know, people say this great conversation, conversation between us, but what about with the listeners? Like, what are their questions? And we thought that was really fascinating that, that those tools didn't really seem to exist. Um, some of the podcasts we talked to had used uh, Facebook and just had a very miserable experience. They'd invested a lot in getting a group on there, but then Facebook just decides to change its algorithm. And so they couldn't reach those group anymore. Like they're like, this is my group, but I can't actually connect with them. And so we were like, we want to create something that the podcaster owns, that this is the, their community, that they can reach out to them, and that community can connect with each other, and it's completely mobile optimized. So it is a, a great mobile experience that works at scale. And so that's what Flick is. So it's a group chat platform, uh, particularly for podcasts that works at real scale, with hundreds and hundreds of concurrent users within one group. Well, now, you know, you're a serial entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. uh, so what was it like raising capital, you know, this time around versus... This time you know? around, you know, a lot easier. <laughs> you know, I kind of sometimes joke, it's like, I nearly wish we'd just done the first startup in three years and then, uh, you know, gone on the next one. Because what I discovered was the... So startups, everything's hard in the startup and a, and a level that people who haven't been in it don't really understand that, like normal cases that nothing works and even things that do work only kind of work um, and and everything is much harder than you expect it to be uh, i always kind of joke that we would do 100 tests and of those 99 would fail and one would maybe kind of work and then we would make that work better um second time around what i've discovered is some of the things that were really hard last time are a lot easier so raising money is a lot easier Hiring has been a lot easier as well, just given the reputation myself and my co-founder had that we could really go out and get the top, very, very top developers and they would want to work with us. Whereas at Fangio, like no one had heard about us, like no one wanted to work with us. And so that's been great and, and we feel really blessed to have such a, an awesome team. Um, but at the same time, the one thing that was really hard last time around is still really hard. And that's finding and building a product that people want. Um, that's, 
that's still really hard. And it's great we've got a great team for it. We've got the experience of sort of knowing not to tell when people give you lots of feedback <laughs> that's negative, <laughs> you know, to take that on board. We have that experience, but it's still really hard. Um, you know, building something that's new, um, that people and like sometimes people don't a lot of time users don't really see the vision and so they'll give you negative feedback and you, it could be really disheartening and but actually it's on you to try and better explain the vision and work it through and so we're kind of we've learned from that but it's still hard to kind of create something create a picture of something totally new and then find the market and find the people and help them get them to buy into it and create that that's still really hard and like what's your plan for flick as far as like 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 how do you going to feel like it was a success like what's the the vision kind yeah, of yeah so i i you know our vision of the company is it's a, a new like i call it communications layer like i believe that there should be if my interest is game of thrones there should be a community for me where i can go and hang out and chat to people who have that interest if my interest is in the Mueller report, then I should be able to go and chat to other people about that and have an intelligent conversation and it shouldn't have trolling and it shouldn't have people flaming each other. That, that should exist. Um, you know, and it's surprised and it should be, I should be able to do it on my phone and it should be a really nice like experience. Um, and so that's our vision is that success to us is whenever people are able to go um, no matter what the topic is, they can go and find their group, find their people and have an intelligent conversation. And we think that podcast is a really good place to be allied with because podcast is creating the communities. They just don't have the place to have the discussion. Mm-hmm. And so for you know your listenership, they want to, they'll want to ask you, they want to ask other people in the community, like, how should I raise my first round? How should I raise these investors? How should I classic one? How should I divide my equity with my co-founder? Because he's technical and I'm not, but I'm working full time and he's doing X. And we, we, you know, entrepreneurs know how to solve these problems, but where's the community to kind of to discuss this and help them? And so that's what we're trying to want to create that communication layer. And in this instance, for podcasts, and for that, it's for people who want to be entrepreneurs, people who are entrepreneurs, to help kind of help each other solve these problems. So what, what advice would you give to founders that are, you know, in search of their, their co-founder? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a, that's a tough one. I've actually given that a, a advice to a number of people recently. Um, and I've always sort of said, like, you know, you're finding somebody, you're going to go on a journey for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So it's not going to happen overnight. It's the first thing. And if it does happen overnight, it's probably not going to be a long journey. So, you know, don't marry in haste. Um, the great places to go where other founders are going to be. Um, so going to sort of tech meetups. I met my co-founders at tech meetup. Um, the other thing is the very best co-founders are going to be people who are either doing it or have done it before. Um, and so my co-founders of, um, of Fangel and my co-founder of my new company, um, they had, uh, he is co-founder back then, they actually had a different startup. And so, you know, early stage and it wasn't really working. And so I basically went in and said, hey, how can I help you with your startup? And so we went in, I because I had experience before with startups. And then I learned a lot from them on the technical side. They learned a lot from me on the business and product side. Um, and then we were said, so let's work together. And so what I've always advised 
entrepreneurs or people who want to find co-founders, go to these events where there's other co-founders, meet other people who are doing things early stage and start to spend time getting to work together. And early stage startups are quite amorphous. Like a lot of times they pivot into something else. Um, the other thing is go and work at an early stage startup. Like your, your first company, you don't have to go and start it yourself. Like the experience you would get in an early stage startup. And then when you're there, look around, like look at, look at all the people you're working with and think who is the guy I would work with or the girl I would work with at my next thing. It might even be a co-founder of the current one. It might be an early employee. And so that's where you kind of build your network. And then the other one is just, just keep building your network of people that you really like working with. Um, and that's where I always think when I hire somebody, I always think like, this is somebody like, you know, ideally I'd like to work with the rest of my life. And so, and when people left Angel, I always been really, always made sure I check in, you know, six months, 12 months on the line, how they're getting on. And many of them I started working with again. Um, Cause you know, I just think it's like a network that I want to invest, I've invested and I want to continue investing. Uh, so building, uh, you know, you built a uh, company at scale that was consumer based. You're doing it again. Yeah. Um, so you've gone through kind of the ups and downs of trying to figure out, you know, building a successful consumer product that people mm -hmm. like and will use. So what advice would you give to founders on, you know, building something that is consumer oriented and, you know, the, the acquisition strategies behind it? Yeah. So consumer is really hard. And that's the first thing to say. And it's funny, my, one of my investors who's on my board, Fangio, and he's, when I left to do another consumer startup, he said, you know, you've got a brilliant track record for blowing an absolute fortune money on your second startup. <laughs> and I was like, why is that? And he said, A, consumer is really hard. And B, you know, your, your previous experience, like it's definitely helpful, but it doesn't mean that you're going to know what consumers want. Um, so I think it's the first thing to kind of recognize that, you know, consumer is hard. You, you definitely in early stage have to be very, you definitely want to have a broad vision of where you want to go and what is the, your, your kind of key insights. But I think you've got to be very um, scrappy about how you get there. Um, what are the things, you know, what are the parts of the market did you focus on? And you just have to be very prepared. It's like, okay, it's not this, it's that. Like we're going to focus on this thing um, or this part of the product's most important or that part. Um, you know, it's funny in consumer, like even with Vangel, I remember those ideas that we had at the very start that we just never did. And I still think they were good ideas, but they just weren't the most important thing to do. And so that's the thing is early stage consumer, you have all these ideas. You kind of say, okay, we're going to focus on this. We're going to try and really make this work. And oftentimes it won't. And so then you kind of pivot a bit and go, okay, we're going to try and focus on this, try and make that work. That won't work. And then third time, maybe there's something that works. So you just have to be very iterative and very, very scrappy. Yeah. Continue to experiment, continue to evolve. It's just experiment, fail, experiment, fail. Um, you know, experiment, something kind of works, then you kind of double down on that. You're busy building your next startup, but, um, you know, so outside of work, what, what do you like to do? Um, so well, I have, I've got three kids, so they keep me very busy. Um, you know, it's certainly summer now. I like to get them outside. I like to get, take them hiking. Um, you know, I do get a chance. I love to run myself, uh, listen to podcasts. It's a nice kind of, I can do together. Um, so you, you listen to podcasts when you run? Yeah. Yeah. It's the only time I sort of feel I have time to, to kind of properly listen to them. Um, uh, and it's great. I don't, I do, do enjoy running particularly in the summer, but in the winter it's kind of a bit of a grind. So a podcast is a good way to get through it. 
Although I do sometimes find I have to like, like I miss something that I have like, okay, I'm going to have to stop and rewind that. Uh, but yeah, no, I absolutely do that. Very cool. Well, Nigel, thanks so much for taking the time to share your background story and obviously the, the story behind FanDuel and what you're up to now with Flick and uh, all the uh, great advice for entrepreneurs. Thank you. I hope that was helpful. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.